This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to BigHeadsMedia.com for more great podcasts. This episode contains explicit and adult content. Listener discretion is advised. All cases and stories covered by this podcast are true stories involving real people. The opinions of the host and any interviewees are simply that, opinions. The credibility of any witnesses and what they say is to be determined by the listener. Everyone is presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. About 200 kilometers west of Toronto lies the smaller city of London, Ontario, nicknamed Forest City. This city has been connected to major metropolitan areas by freeways and highways since 1956. Yet, it's still separated and urban. It's a beautiful location, surrounded by nature. But London has a dark and haunted past. We'll be exploring a part of this dark and sordid past over a series of episodes. Travel with me today back to 1973 in London and Guelph, Ontario. This is episode 27 of True Crime Real Time, London Sorted Past, Part 2, The Bedroom Strangler. And this is your host, Genevieve Germain. Just a few items about this podcast. True Crime Real Time is a bi-weekly podcast covering missing persons and unsolved murders. We're available across many platforms such as CastBox, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play Music, and many others. Links, information, and pictures relating to the cases or stories we cover can be found on our website at www.truecrimerealtimepod.com or on our Instagram account or on our Facebook page. The links to Instagram, our website, and our Facebook page can be found on the podcast channel description. Photos, as well as any other information, are generally posted at the same time as when the episode is published. Now back to the show. Mary Catherine was a petite, vibrant, and active young woman. She was in her third year at Western University in London, Ontario. Her older sister, Elizabeth, had already graduated from Western and moved to Toronto. Mary Catherine and Elizabeth's parents were still in Ottawa, but they have friends and family in the Toronto region. She was a middle child, having four siblings. Her dad was adamant that all his kids would have a degree. He wanted them to have the best possible future. Mary Catherine stayed back in London in the apartment that she shared with her roommate, having just been accepted into her honours year. She was ambitious and a goal-oriented individual. She had already decided where she wanted to go and what she wanted to study for graduate school. She had decided to apply to Sorbonne University in Paris for graduate school. She wanted to be a French professor. It was a cool October Friday night, and Mary Catherine had just come back from a local bar where she was with friends for a drink or two, to her ground-floor, two-bedroom apartment. 
Little did she know that someone had followed her home and watched from outside to see which room was hers. She made her way inside, got ready for bed, and switched off the light in the bedroom for the very last time. The next morning, Mary Catherine's roommate came to wake her but discovered her lifeless body snugly tucked beneath her blankets, a pillow partially covering her face, and one of her school books open on the bed. Her bedroom was immaculate, not a thing out of place. Moreover, there was no forced entry to the apartment. The police were called, they canvassed her neighbors in the building, took forensic photos, and the coroner was called to arrange for the removal of her body and to arrange for an autopsy. An autopsy was completed, and, taking into consideration that there were no signs of violence on her body or in the apartment, the death was ruled accidental. The coroner indicated that she aspirated after having an allergic reaction or suffering from an allergic seizure to prescription medication. According to an NAPSA conference in 2012, about 50% of individuals who suffocated or were strangled do not show any outwardly or external signs of strangulation, even when examined by a skilled medical professional. It would be another six years before the truth of her death would be known. A month and a half later, on November 30, 1973, about 120 kilometers away in Guelph, Ontario, 42-year-old Alice Jane Ralston would be found dead in her bed. There would be no forced entry, and the apartment would be exceptionally tidy. The coroner would rule her death as a natural cause, and attribute her death to hardened arteries. Approximately three months later, back in London, 27-year-old Eleanor Diane Hartwick would be found tucked neatly under her covers in her bedroom of her Westlake Street apartment with an open paperback novel in her hands, as though she had died while reading a novel. Again, the apartment would be very neat and tidy, and there would be no evidence of forced entry. The London police attended the scene, canvassed the neighbors in the corner attended the scene and arranged for the removal of her body, as well as an autopsy. Her death was also ruled as an accident, or from natural causes, and, like Mary Catherine, determined to be caused by an allergic reaction to a prescription medication. Coincidentally, Mary Catherine Hicks and Eleanor Hartwick were taking similar, if not the same, prescription medication. Another four months would go by. The women in Guelph and London wouldn't know there was a silent killer in their midst able to expertly scale buildings and quietly letting himself into their apartments. In the summer of 1974, 49-year-old mother of five, Dottie Brown, was starting her life over. She had just recently separated from her husband of 30 years, found a job, and moved into a second-floor apartment with her two youngest children, Colleen and Laura. Her life was starting to make a turn for the better after recovering from a bit of depression following the dissolution of her marriage. She was described as elegant and classy, a good mom, reliable, and caring. On Thursday, August 8th, Dottie's youngest daughter, Colleen, was spending the night away visiting family, so Dottie and Laura had the apartment to themselves. It was an exciting time. Laura was turning 16 the next day and couldn't wait to write the driving test to get her learner's permit. Dottie and Laura decided they wanted to be the first ones there in the morning to write the test, so Friday morning would be an early one. At the end of the day, they each went to their own adjacent bedrooms to go to sleep. Dottie set the alarm for earlier in the morning so she could wake up Laura to get ready to take her driving test for her learner's permit the first thing in the morning. The following morning, Friday, 
the ninth of august laura woke up to the sun shining in through her window and a feeling of having overslept as well as the sound of her mum's radio alarm she felt odd it wasn't like her mum to sleep in and definitely not like her to sleep through an alarm although apprehensive she went into her mother's room and saw her there lying still in bed completely tucked in with the blankets all the way up to her chin laura called to her mother but there was no answer this wasn't good she knew something was deadly wrong and was shocked and scared but made herself move forward to check more closely she shook her mum and called for her to wake up but her mum was no longer living devastated and crying she called her uncle it took a few attempts to her to get her voice out and for her aunt and uncle to understand what laura was saying they arrived at dotty's apartment around ten minutes later nothing was disturbed in the bedroom everything was in order and was neat and tidy by all accounts it looked as though dotty passed away in her sleep from natural cause dotty's brother called the coroner when the coroner arrived a precursory inspection of the room was completed he noted prescription sleeping medication which had recently been filled however only two pills were missing nothing that would have caused a death there was no outwardly evidence of foul play and no signs of forced entry or violent disturbances in the room a small amount of blood was found under her body in her mouth as well as in her rectum however the police were not called as there was no obvious evidence of foul play her death was not reported in the media the coroner had concluded that death was due to pulmonary edema which is an excess of fluid in the lungs one cause for pulmonary edema is strangulation but something would happen to their silent killer before the end of nineteen seventy four something that would unravel his psyche and launch him into chaos no longer grasping at the cool control he once had before completing the story i just wanted to tell you the following hello all my armchair detectives this episode is sponsored by my go-to mobile puzzle game best fiends this game is perfect for what i like to call physical distancing the game is full of fun challenges and special missions and were designed with adults in mind you don't need to be a gamer anyone can play and you don't need wi-fi or your data plan you can play in between activities like cleaning out your closets trying to give yourself a root touch-up even though you know your hairstylist is going to need to fix that later i do this so my husband and mom never have the chance to keep up with me and it's becoming a fun little bragging right at the dinner table so far i'm at level 451 much higher than both of them but i do need to catch up on raising baby slugs so guys Join in on the fun and make it a family event regardless of how physically far apart you may be and engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this 5-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Okay, back to the show. 23-year-old Diane was a sweet, girl-next-door type of young woman, an only child, and her mother's pride. Diane was starting a new chapter in her life. She'd just bought a new car and moved into a new apartment. She had been off work for a two-week period around the Christmas holidays and was enjoying staying home and hanging out with her boyfriend. And, nearing the end of the Christmas holidays, her boyfriend became her fiancé. On Monday evening, December 30th, James got down on one knee diamond ring in hand and asked if diane would marry him 
She said yes. James would spend the night with Diane at her Drew Street apartment in Guelph, Ontario. On Tuesday, the 31st of December, they were both up and had an early breakfast together at 5.45 a.m. before James went off to work. James returned to Diane's apartment at approximately 6 p.m. after his day at work. They were supposed to go to a New Year's Eve party together. When he let himself in with his key, no lights were on and the apartment was dark. He called for Diane when he entered her apartment, but she didn't answer. It didn't seem like she was home. Upon entering her room, he saw a large pile of blankets on top of the bed. He flipped on the switch and removed the blankets and was devastated by what lay before him. There was his beloved Diane, naked, a pillow partially covering her head, her bra still knotted around her neck and her wrists tied behind her back with her nylons. It was evident that she had been murdered. When law enforcement arrived, they found one of Diane's slippers outside of the apartment door, its twin by the telephone. Photographer came in to record the scene on film before any detectives could come in to inspect. After this, the apartment was dusted for foreign fingerprints. All these fingerprints would be cleared over the next three weeks. There was no evidence of forced entry, so initially police theorized that maybe she knew her attacker. However, the room itself was very tidy, aside from the pile of blankets covering Diane's body, as was her apartment. During Diane's attack and during the initial police presence, the cat remained terrified under Diane's bed. The neighbors were canvassed. A few neighbors stated seeing a dark-colored four-door Buick in the parking lot behind the apartment building between 4 a.m. and 9 a.m., with the motor still running. The police searched for the vehicle registration records for similar vehicles as the one described by the witnesses. There were thousands of results that matched, but none seemed connected to Diane in any way. Her autopsy confirmed what police already knew. Her cause of death was due to ligature strangulation. There were no signs of bruising around her wrists, indicating that they were bound after death. Additionally, there were signs of sexual assault after death. After interviewing close to 200 people, the case started to go stale. Law enforcement felt that there was someone somewhere in Guelph that knew what happened and had information. And, by the end of February 1975, the police offered a $5,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction in connection with Diane's death. Police were looking for a four-door, dark-colored Buick that was observed to be parked in the back of the apartment building with the motor running between 4 and 9 a.m. on the 31st of December. Her murder was erroneously reported as the first murder in Guelph since 1967, due to the fact that, at the time, the other murders were mistaken for deaths due to natural or accidental causes. Unfortunately, the police didn't yet catch their man. Another four months would pass, and another young woman would be found dead in her bed. Her name was Luella. She was a 23-year-old country girl that had moved to London and had been living there for about a year. She was also recently engaged. She worked as a cashier at the snack bar at the Victoria Hospital in London, Ontario. She lived in an apartment on the top floor, which was the fourth floor, of the apartment building directly across from the hospital. Many nurses and other employees of the hospital lived in the same building. Luella was scheduled to work on Friday the 15th of April. After not showing up, a co-worker became concerned and visited her one-bedroom apartment to check up on her. She was found dead, tucked into bed, on the top floor, one-bedroom apartment. Law enforcement was called and attended the scene. Her apartment was dusted for fingerprints, and a forensic photographer recorded the scene on film. Her apartment was very tidy, and there was virtually no evidence of any struggle, nor was there any evidence of forced entry. 
The other tenants in the apartment building were questioned, however, unfortunately, none of them heard or saw anything, and this avenue of the investigation was a dead end. While law enforcement was searching and canvassing the neighborhood, they came across some jewelry and lingerie belonging to Luella that was discarded in the rubbish bin in an alley about two blocks away from Luella's apartment building. This gave law enforcement the escape route of Luella's murderer. Someone very strong had scaled the side of the building and let himself in through the unlocked balcony door while she was sleeping. She was on the fourth floor. Luella's murder could have easily been mistaken for a natural cause murder, as the killer reverted back to the same M.O. as the first four silent murders. However, it was the theft of her jewelry and undergarments that really indicated that someone had been in the room with her and took a souvenir following her death. After this, the police completed a public service announcement warning about a nighttime intruder and provided a safety checklist, a.k.a. make sure all your doors are locked regardless if you're on the 15th floor of a high-rise. Between April and July of 1977, there would be several reports to the police from women who awoke in their rooms to a dark and shadowy large figure of what appeared to be a man who would flee the apartment as soon as he saw the women wake up. This was following the public announcement completed by the police. Law enforcement would attend, but there would be no forced entry. I'm unsure if all or some of these factually occurred. However, in June, a young lady was raped and strangled and left for dead in her bed in her high-rise apartment. The doctor had indicated that should she have been strangled even a few more seconds, she would have surely died. Two more women were similarly attacked in their bedrooms at night in their apartment buildings. Police concluded that these were all related, and that the person they were dealing with must be very strong and able to scale the size of these buildings by climbing from one balcony to the other, standing on the railing of one balcony and pulling his weight onto the next balcony. One of the surviving victims was able to provide a description of the perpetrator. She described him as a tall, strong man with defined muscles. Additional descriptions were provided in order for a composite sketch to be completed but this wouldn't be enough yet to catch their man, and unfortunately, another victim would die by his hands. At 11.30 p.m. on July 15, 1977, a man tried to get into an apartment building by buzzing a random tenant in an apartment building. When the young lady answered the buzzer, the unknown man identified himself as a police officer and asked to be led into the building. Feeling weary, the woman called the police to confirm the police officer's name, but they denied knowing any officer by that name. At this point, the unknown man disappeared. At this time, 22-year-old Donna Veldboom said goodnight to her friend that she had spent time with that evening after work, as it was getting late and she needed to work the next day. Donna had moved out of her parents' home in the East Coast province of New Brunswick for a better position with the gas station company that employed her. She had been living in London for about six months. Her apartment was located on Orchard Street. Living alone, moving furniture up and down flights of stairs isn't always easy, so she felt lucky when a 30-year-old, very fit and muscular man named Russell helped her out when she moved in. She was scheduled to work on the 16th, but she didn't show up. This was very much unlike her. After the morning and early afternoon passed with no communication from Donna, they couldn't shake that feeling that something was wrong, so the concerned colleagues contacted the police and requested a wellness check. Law enforcement went to her apartment, and when entering, found her dead in her bed, nude, with a large slash across her chest. Her body had been bathed and placed back into bed and tucked in. The apartment was cleaned thoroughly, including the dishes, and the towel used in bathing Donna's body 
was put into the communal laundry machine, indicating that the perpetrator was there for an abnormal amount of time. This information led law enforcement to believe that only someone with familiarity and knowledge of the building would be comfortable staying in the building for a lengthy amount of time, especially using the communal laundry facilities. Donna's parents were informed of their daughter's death on the 16th of July. At this point, law enforcement was confident they were dealing with a psychopathic serial killer who was physically strong, maybe even a bodybuilder, and who was obsessive-compulsive about cleanliness. After Donna's death, the task force in place to find this killer grew to about 30 officers, working tirelessly around the clock to hopefully catch him before he strikes again. One of the things they did do, or tried to do, is to have several officers hold brainstorming sessions with some of the victim's relatives, friends, loved ones, see if there were any common ground or any other connections. Because at this point, they couldn't necessarily find a connection between the victims that they knew. What, if any leads, this provided is unknown. With no other leads at the time, they pulled a list of all current tenants of the building and saw a familiar name. Russell Morris Johnson. His name was also on the list of previous tenants from Luella's apartment building. Coincidentally, the items belonging to Luella that were discarded in the rubbish bin in the back alley was directly between Luella's apartment building and the apartment building on Orchard Street where Russell Johnson and Donna Veldboom lived. Russell Morris Johnson was described as tall, standing at six foot three, handsome, and an amateur weightlifter. Russell was an assembly line worker at the nearby Ford plant who had recently separated from his wife and son. He was 30 years old and spent a lot of time at the gym. He demonstrated obsessive compulsive traits where he would constantly be washing his hands. He was often described as lacking ambition, awkward, who was often bullied despite his size during school. Guelph was his hometown. Although he lived in London, he would travel back and forth between Guelph and London to visit family. Russell Johnson had a history of sexual deviancy. Law informants had already interviewed him as they were looking at known sexual deviants, and he was on the list. Seeing as Russell had ties in Guelph, the London police called the police in Guelph to discuss him specifically. While speaking, the Guelph police informed the London police that on the day of Diane Bites' murder, Russell Johnson was the man who had reported his luggage stolen from his vehicle after it was broken into. Russell's car itself is also similar to the one seen at the crime scene. By the third day after Donna's death, law enforcement was able to connect Russell to the murders of Diane Bites, Luella George, and Donna Veldboom. But, because all of their evidence was circumstantial, they didn't want to move to make an arrest at this point and hoped to gather additional information or evidence. Therefore, he was put under a 24-hour surveillance. The surveillance lasted about four to five days. Law enforcement had four different cars with two officers in each vehicle running surveillance on him continuously. During observation, he exhibited strange, erratic, or abnormal behaviors, starting with excessively washing his hands. On several occasions, Russell would get in his car, drive to a random spot, get out of his car, frantically look around, maybe walk to the corner, then back to his car, and sit in it for a while, as though he was waiting for someone, and then drive off. This was apparently done on more than one occasion. During the four days that they surveilled him, other than being odd, he didn't do anything that could be incriminating. On the fourth day of surveillance, on the 28th of July, the police could see that Johnson was planning on taking a holiday. They weren't sure where he was going or even if he was coming back. So although unprepared for the arrest, they needed to move forward now. 
Two chosen officers approached Russell's door for the arrest. Russell was calm and invited them in to clean up before going out with them. His apartment was excessively clean and tidy. He immediately went to wash his hands before being escorted to the station by law enforcement. Russell Johnson was taken into custody on the 28th for questioning. Law enforcement's end goal would be to get a full confession, as they didn't have any physical evidence, only circumstantial evidence. His questioning would last about 22 hours. During questioning, Russell Johnson broke down in tears and confessed to the murders of Diane Bites, Luella George, and Donna Veldboom. He indicated periods of calm and periods of uncontrollable violent urges. He told police that he would be, quote, seized by an uncontrollable urge which drove him to scale apartment balconies in search of victims, end quote. He would randomly walk and scale buildings looking for victims, he would go on to say that he would be overcome by uncontrollable urges and he would find himself scaling apartment buildings, going from balcony to balcony, looking for single women. He told the police that if he saw a family, then he would bypass them. He also explained that he would get the same high strangling women as making tackles in football, just better because it lasted longer. With regards to Diane's murder, Russell indicated that he was in Guelph visiting his father, he provided a statement to the police that he had entered her apartment through the kitchen, presumably looking for a woman that he used to live with, and she discovered him. He then grabbed her and started choking her. He said that when he heard about the murder on the radio, he wasn't sure if it was him or not. He apparently had some disassociative disorder when he had violent psychotic breaks from reality. As for Luella, Russell Johnson had scaled the side of the building, going from balcony to balcony, looking for an unlocked door to let himself into, and he let himself into her apartment when she was sleeping. He would tell police that he didn't remember getting into her apartment specifically, but that he did remember strangling her. After having strangled Luelli, he tucked her into bed and straightened everything in the room. Russell Johnson gained access to Donna's apartment by using his plastic time punch card from work to slip Donna's lock. He told police that he let himself into her apartment while she was sleeping and initially just laid down in bed beside her in order to feel better. But when she woke up to adjust the fan, he started strangling her. After she had died, he had slashed her across the chest in an attempt to cocoon himself inside to again feel better. He didn't want her to be mad at him, so he bathed her body and tucked her back into bed. So things would be as they were. He always cleaned after his assaults. He thought that by cleaning the apartments of his victims, they wouldn't be mad at him. There was much relief when he was caught. He was charged with first-degree murder for each of the three women. Russell Johnson's crimes had significantly escalated, and his mental stability decreased. He went from stealing underwear to breaking into apartments, staring at women while they slept. By the time he turned 22, he progressed into full-blown sexual sadism. He had raped and strangled a girl, leaving her for dead, but she survived, and it would be at this point that he had checked himself into the London Psychiatric Hospital in 1969, seeking help. There, he was diagnosed as a sexual deviant. He stayed there for about one week, and then he had checked himself out. He would later tell the police that if he would have gotten the help that he needed at that time, then those women would not have been killed. While he was in police custody, he hinted at other attacks and murders that he committed. In order to bring closure to these other cases, a deal was struck with Russell's lawyer that if Russell admitted and provided statements to any other assaults or murder, he would not be prosecuted for them. This was accepted by both the Crown and the defendant. By the mid-1970s, he started murdering the women. 
he admitted to the murder of Mary Catherine Hicks, Alice Jane Ralston, Eleanor Hartwick, and Dottie Brown, sodomizing Dottie after her death, all originally thought to have died from natural causes. He also confessed to approximately ten additional attacks and rapes on women while they were sleeping in their beds. He was diagnosed with drug-induced schizophrenia, fetishism, sadism, voyeurism, and as a necrophiliac. Other than the seven deaths that are attributed to him, he's also believed to be responsible for at least ten assaults on women, choking them to the point of them losing consciousness. He was brought to court and charged with first-degree murder of the last three victims only. He was found not guilty by reason of insanity. He is at the maximum security facility at the Penetanguishene Mental Health Center, now called Waypoint Center for Mental Health Care. At court, Johnson said that he wasn't trying to conceal the crimes when he tidied the apartments, or covered the murdered victims with bedding, but when the crime was over, he felt bad and he didn't want them to hate him, so he would tuck them into bed and clean their apartments. Unlike regular federal prisons, there's no eligibility for parole. Once incarcerated there, you usually don't get out. With seven murders and almost a dozen rapes, he's definitely one of Canada's worst serial predators. Russell stood trial for the three murders before the Supreme Court of Ontario in January of 1978, with a jury made up of six women and six men. He pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. He was diagnosed with several things, including a mental disorder that manifests itself in constant repetition of handwashing. He was also diagnosed with sexual sadism, which is when someone has fantasies and gets sexual gratification by inducing pain on someone else, whether it be psychological or physical. He was also diagnosed with voyeurism, fetishism, sadism, and as a necrophiliac, which is someone who engages in sexual activity or intercourse with a corpse, as well as drug-induced schizophrenia or drug-induced psychosis. The symptoms of these, which are brought on by different legal and illegal substances such as alcohol, cannabis, cocaine, and opioids, are hallucinations, delusions, unusual or dysfunctional thoughts, and problems with working memory. He suffers from acute episodes of psychotic nature in which he loses touch with reality. A psychiatrist who testified at trial stated that Johnson was certifiable under the terms of the Mental Health Act. However, he was found fit to stand trial. There was no question as to his guilt in the murders of the three women, and law enforcement was convinced of the attacks and rapes that he admitted to, as well as the four other deaths. In fact, both sides agreed that Johnson was mentally ill. The six-man, six-woman jury took about two hours to deliberate, and he was found not guilty by reason of insanity. He was sent to the maximum security wing of Oak Ridge, the maximum security wing of the Waypoint Center for Mental Health Care, where he was going to be held indefinitely. At every hearing for transfer to a medium security facility, the family of Russell's victims attend, take notes, and sit in the benches, making sure that their faces are seen by those making the decision. And despite voluntarily undergoing chemical castration, as well as taking Lupron to reduce his testosterone, his bids to be transferred to a medium security facility have been denied, and he remains in the maximum security wing. As for his remorse for the murders, he expressed some, but he also stated that he's moved on with his life, therefore the family of his victims should as well. This brings us to the end of part two of London's Sorted Past, The Bedroom Strangler. I hope you'll join me in two weeks' time for part three. In the meantime, here's a promo of another podcast I think you might be interested in. Hello, everyone. Let me tell you about the Apple for the Teacher podcast. I'm Anna Thomas, a teacher and your host. 
So you're probably thinking it's about reading, writing and arithmetic, right? Well, think again. It's a fresh take on true crime, where you wouldn't expect to find true crime. In schools, yes, schools. I will share with you the tragic and shocking stories I have uncovered in my own profession. You will hear stories about murder, abduction, school bus hijack, student disappearance, suicide, kidnap and ransom, school camp tragedy, the list goes on. So if you're looking for something a little different in the true crime genre, then Apple for the Teacher is for you. So join me as I present The Bad Apples. But until then, remember to be a good apple. I want to thank you for listening to this episode of True Crime Real Time. If you've enjoyed this episode, please give us a good rating and leave us a review. This will help our reach and bring more attention to the cases we cover.